you'll uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 3. We'll be starting in Acts chapter 3 today. Um, This morning we'll we'll read the entirety of Acts chapter 3. Uh, pastor is uh, trying to save his voice for the for the message this morning, so uh, we'll we'll get through Acts chapter three, the entirety of chapter three, and actually uh, reading today into Acts chapter four. We'll be stopping at verse three of Acts chapter four. So if you'll follow along with me, starting in Acts chapter three and verse one. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him, with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now as the, lamb, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us? as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses." And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those which God, those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer He has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. 
Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Some of you are wondering what pastor really sounds like because you haven't heard me much today, and this is it. And it's worse than the fact that it sounds bad is that I can't get my breath for some reason, and um, and if I get sleepy on you, it's because of the NyQuil. I took it at 8 o'clock last night, and it usually lasts 16 hours with me, and I take a half dose, so and it's been years since I took any, and now it's, woo. So I want to thank Scott and Jeremy for jumping in there and covering some of my bases this morning. And I do want to take time as well to greet all of you and to wish our moms happy Mother's Day and uh, rejoice in that role that God has given you um, that uh, extends long beyond when your children leave your home. You have opportunity to minister in their lives even into adulthood. and not just in grandparenthood, but even uh, beyond that. And so we want to uh, take time to recognize that role that God has given you, a very precious role that is uh, far too much diminished in our society. And uh, we, we uh, need to uh, take that time, I believe, appropriately to honor that role that God has, has given you within the home. Well, this morning we want to uh, press on, and everybody's excited. They heard Acts chapter 3 read instead of chapter 2. We're actually going to try to press all the way through chapter, into chapter 4. This is really uh, conveying the same uh, event and its aftermath. We're only going to begin to look at its aftermath today. We're going to revisit it in two weeks, not next week. Next week we're going to study the last half of Peter's sermon in chapter 3. Because he brings us uh, forward from his preaching that we saw in chapter 2, he brings us forward into anticipating the work of Christ in his future role as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as Judge of all the earth, as the one who will come and establish his kingdom. And Peter begins introducing this very early in church history. This is his second sermon. And so we have uh, an opportunity to look into that next week. This week we were going to feel like, didn't we just study this the last few weeks, as we consider the opportunity that's been afforded Peter to preach this sermon, and the force of what he preached and the results. And so we are what we have studied for several weeks now in Acts chapter 2, we are going to see again uh, put into practice in Acts chapter 3. Before we get into it, let's go Lord in prayer together. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather your name this morning. Thank you for each one here. And we thank you for your spirit 
and his willingness to work in our midst. And we recognize that we have a role in that, that we must be submissive to his work, that we might seek it out, that we must choose not to resist him, choose to walk in him. And so we pray that your spirit might find us ready vessels for his work to convict, to instruct, to encourage, to uh, direct. Lord, we pray that he might do so. And we know that uh, the tool by which he does that work is your word, his sword. And so, Lord, as we look into it, we pray for your help to communicate your truth effectively, accurately, Lord, that we might not see it just as for others, but for ourselves. I place ourselves into the text, into the message, and recognizing that you desire to do a great work through us once you've done a great work in us. We pray that that might occur even this morning. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we begin with some historical narrative of what leads us up to Peter's second recorded sermon. Again, not likely his second sermon overall, but our second one recorded for us. We left off last week seeing the activity of the church being centered around uh, the communion table, uh, house-to-house eating together, uh, time spent in God's Word, of fellowship, of baptism, All of this being largely done in their large group meetings in the temple. And so Peter, along with John, are on their way to the temple, presumably to do another day of the daily activity that we were introduced to last week in the church's life. They go up there at the ninth hour, about time for prayer. It's a prayer hour, so it would have been largely attended. How far we are from Pentecost, we are not really told whether this was the next day, several days, or weeks later. The indication is that it's fairly recent. And as they enter the beautiful gate, uh, which is uh, one of the gates around the temple area, uh, they encounter a man, and we are kind of taken back by his presence there. We're taken back because we're really only a couple of months from Christ's activity in Jerusalem. And we read throughout the Gospels again and again and again all the healing ministry that he participated in. And we see multitudes that are carrying lame people to him. Remember the story of the ones that dug through the roof to lower him down to Jesus because the crowds were so intense. And we see again that all who came to him desiring to be healed, he healed, and with a few exceptions, and that would be uh, in places where it's recorded that they did not have much faith. His hometown of Nazareth, as well as a few other towns that asked him to leave instead of enjoying his presence and the power thereof. And so we come to this, and we're kind of, by the time we're done reading the Gospels, we kind of think that there can't be a sick person left in Israel. After all the activity of Jesus Christ over those years of healing in his itinerant work throughout the country. 
We come to this and we say, well, how did Jesus miss this one? Sitting in one of the major gates, entryways, and Jesus didn't heal him. He was reserved for just this occasion. And I want to call to mind some things that Jesus taught his disciples. One of the things he said is that uh, if you're impressed by my miracles, you're going to be doing greater miracles than these. Do you remember those words of Christ to his disciples? You're going to be doing greater ones. That the miracles themselves did not attest to Jesus as uh, divine, but rather as an agent of the divine, the Holy Spirit. He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And thus, when people said, you're doing this by the power of Satan, he said, be careful. You're going, you're treading on very thin ice, and in fact, that's an unforgivable sin, because you're attributing the work of Holy Spirit to Satan, and that's blasphemy of the Spirit. You know, and so he says, you can blaspheme me, blaspheme the Father, but don't you blaspheme the Spirit of God. And attribute to Satan that work that his spirit does. And so Christ himself attested the fact that what he did, he did by the power of the Spirit, that it was to a degree dependent upon the faith of the people to whom he is ministering. And in those two components, we come to the fact that this is an individual that hadn't just missed Christ, but rather was purposely not healed, as well as others, demons that weren't cast out, uh, blind that weren't given their sight. And in fact, we're going to see throughout the book of Acts that the power of Peter, he didn't even have to speak to them, he didn't have to uh, touch them. Uh, just the shadow when he walked by was sufficient. It kind of takes us back and reminds us of the woman with the issue of blood who came up and in the midst of the crowd pressing, Jesus just reached out and says, if I could just touch his garment, I could be healed. If I could just touch him. And it was a matter not necessarily of the extent of the power of the Holy Spirit because the power of the Holy Spirit has no limits. But it really rode upon the faith of the individual to a great degree. And Jesus Christ senses that power going out, not by his will, but by the faith of the one who touches him. And he says, who touched me? <laughs> and of course, the, the, everyone's going, what do you mean who touched you? We're all touching you. We're, we're walking through a crowd. How can you say who touched me? But who touched me by faith for healing? And so this individual, the first thing that I note about him is he doesn't ask to be healed. He doesn't ask for healing. And we're dealing with Peter and John, two of the inner three of Jesus' disciples, who have already demonstrated some incredible uh, ministry in these early days of the church. Walking by, and the man who has been carried there, we are told later on that he is 40, in his 40s. 40 years he had been with them. He'd been carried as a very young child to this place. He had been there for all of his life, essentially. From his mother's womb, he's been lame. They, referring to his family, and, and here we go, moms. This is what mom did, because this was the job of invalids in Israel, was uh, to go to the temple gate and to request alms. And so they, referring to his family, we assume, would carry him to that gate, 
where he would request alms of those who entered the gate. And by the way, if you read through the Levitical uh, regulations, part of your worship coming in, in addition to your tithes, in addition to your sin offerings, in addition to all the giving requirements that was to support and sustain the the uh, temple and its priests and the government of Israel, you were also to come prepared to give alms. We've kind of lost track of that a little bit, I fear, in some of our uh, understanding of giving. Um, that is that you were expected to enter into the, into the temple area uh, to care for these that couldn't care for themselves. And it was their job, if you will, it was their assignment in their society to take up these posts at the gates to enable Israel to worship God by meeting their needs. Now, you and I don't often think of that in terms of an act of worship. But that wasn't so foreign to the Israelites who recognized that caring for these who could not care for themselves but were willing to faithfully fulfill the assignment that the law put forward for them, that they were to go to the gates of the city, they were to go there and request alms, that is, uh, giving, uh, begging, if you will, we would use that term, that that was their job. They couldn't get there by themselves. They were dependent on others to carry them, but they would station themselves there and they would faithfully perform that function. And again, we are reminded of Christ's teaching to us that the poor you'll always have with you and that we have responsibility to the fatherless, to widows, and to those who are incapable of caring for themselves. And so, according to the law's requirements for him, he has been positioned at the gate. He is prepared to uh, request or to beg alms from those who have entered the temple. He sees Peter and John approaching. And he does his job. He asks for alms. Whether he was unfamiliar with who they were, or with the work of Christ in general, we're not given any information. And so it's just speculation really to try to guess But he does the work that he is assigned to do. He is there to ask for alms and to support his family in that way, uh, to be a contributor to his family income by taking up that position the law required of him. Peter and John, of course, come and uh, they stop. A request has been given for alms. And they have come to the temple incredibly unprepared to give alms. Remember, they're coming on a daily basis. This is not just an occasional pilgrimage there. They've now taken up some kind of residence there in Jerusalem. And they are uh, going there daily to do some teaching. And their statement to him, uh, first of all, they command to look at him. Take a look at us. The normal position for those that would beg would be with their eyes down. And so... Peter and John stop, look upon him, and then say, you need to look at us. And again, verse 5, what is he expecting? He's not expecting to be healed. 
He's expecting that maybe they have a big gift for me. Maybe they, they just want to be very deliberate about this. And uh, instead of just tossing in something, that they have something more substantial. He looks up at them with that expectation. And then Peter gives the famous statement. We actually have it in song. We sing with the children pretty often. It says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. A command, much like Jesus' command. Uh, but Peter's going to go a step further. Remember, this man has not asked for healing, hasn't sought it out. Uh, we have no, we're in there an indication that he has that faith to be healed. But the purposes of God are there to direct attention to the word of God and the preaching of his word. And Peter stops and engages him. We're going to look at the statement, Jesus of Nazareth, as we see uh, Peter's sermon here very shortly. The man doesn't get up and walk. He's commanded to get up and rise up and walk. When Jesus has done this in the past, the people sprang to their feet. The man led down on a litter before Christ. Your sins are forgiven you. Rise and walk. Jumped up out of his litter and, and danced around and was giving glory to God. The man doesn't respond by getting up. And so, verse 7, Peter took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Then we find him leaping and standing and walking and entering the temple, walking, leaping and praising God. He has engaged now in this full activity in verse 8, but it was conditioned uh, tremendously upon the work of Peter and his desire to touch this, this individual with the powerful name of Jesus Christ, to heal him. Though he hadn't asked for that healing, Though it wasn't something that he expected, and it was, there's no indication that he had uh, applied himself in faith, and I would contend that this is what Jesus Christ was talking about when he said, greater works than these you will do. That on several occasions, as we are going to see throughout the book of Acts, you will find the power of the Holy Spirit Engaging people's lives in such a manner that it uh, brings them to the worship of God seemingly against their will. Certainly without their active participation. And here's our first engagement with just such an individual. And I want to begin by prefacing what we studied last week a little bit of the difference between those who simply followed and those who truly believed. That there is a distinction within the community known as Christians between those who are the genuine followers of Jesus Christ who are actively engaged in the uh ministry of the Holy Spirit one to another within the context of a local church, recognizing that we have responsibility to the universal church as well, uh, and those who simply have made a profession of faith in Christ with no 
accompanying works. And, and the scriptures again and again deal with this aspect of our community called the Christians. That there are those who have tasted of the Holy Spirit, who have partaken of the heavenly gift, but yet are still in trouble. And they are warned again and again in Scripture, going all the way back to Christ's teaching in the parable of the sower and the soils and seed, all the way through into books like Hebrews and James, First uh, John, where we are given all of this uh, warning to make our calling sure, to make our salvation complete. And so, while it appears that we have this uh, this uh, instance of the overriding of this individual's interest or desires or faith, we recognize that bringing him into a following of Christ um, on a superficial level is pretty simple to do, and we can do it um, in our society today. Um, it's not hard to gather a crowd to you if you tell them what they like to hear. Uh, we have lots of people that uh, are very proficient at that. But it's a whole other matter to bring them to become disciples of Jesus Christ, that is, those who are putting into practice all that Christ has taught us. This is the work of the church. And so, yes, I would agree with all those that come to this text and say, well, you see, this person was not asking for deliverance in terms of healing. He did not obey at first. He had to be literally lifted. And I would contend that there are many in society that when you confront them with the gospel, need this much attention. They are that small or undeveloped in their faith. They're unwilling, uh, really, to uh, risk that engagement with Christ. And it calls upon us to do more. And Peter and John here are investing themselves on that level. This is a man who has no expectation except to keep doing this job until the day he dies. He doesn't even know what to ask for. Remember, asking was a really important thing in Acts chapter 2. What are you asking? Well, this man isn't asking the right questions. He's asking for alms, and Peter says, I don't have alms. But I do have something that's worth a lot more than that. And as people come to us and ask us the wrong questions, it is imperative that we take them out of their area of thought, out of their conception of what they think are the right questions to ask. From his perspective, it's been going on for years, decades. He's been doing this job. This is what he asks. This is what he's comfortable with. This is what the expectation is for him as a beggar. And Peter and John want to take him out of that sphere and put him into a sphere that's going to lead to faith. And this takes a lot of work. I mean, if you consider that people with faith uh, were simply healed by, by Peter's shadow walking by, I mean, this is a lot of work Peter's investing in this guy. He wants to communicate, first of all, you're asking too little. And the fact is, is that most people you're going to encounter in our world today are asking too little of society, of themselves, and particularly of God. It is just too small a thing to ask to say, I want money. I want a good job. I want a nice house. I want a... That's pretty puny things to ask for, frankly. 
none of those things last. When you die, you're not going to take any of that with you. You might pass it on to further generations, but they're not going to appreciate the work it took for you to develop that. And they're going to squander it. And Ecclesiastes says, you know, that's all vanity. It's all worthless. What's the point? The fact is, is that the American dream that people are chasing so uh, vigorously are all chasing something that's empty, void, meaningless. They're asking for the wrong things. Peter recognizes that in this individual. They're asking for the wrong, he's asking for the wrong things, and I need to redirect his attention. It's going to take some work, and it almost takes the man by surprise. I'm not going to give you alms. I do have something I can give you, and that is the power of God to heal you. And he calls upon to rise up and walk. And at this point, Peter is, falls upon him to reach down, lifts him up, and then the miracle happens. Do you notice that? It wasn't that his heels and his, or his ankles, his legs, um, reformed and were now functional before Peter picked him up, but as he was getting up, as Peter was lifting him, the legs were strengthened. The ankles were reformed. The man is able to stand, to walk, to leap, to fully engage the legs that he hadn't used for 40 years. And in the midst of all the physical activity of verse 8, there's one uh, spiritual activity at at the end of each of the lists. So we look at the leaping, Up, stood, and walked. So he leaping up, stood, and walked. He felt that work of God in his legs. And as Peter's lifting him up, he suddenly joins in with Peter, and he leaps up, finishes that work, if you will, of of coming to a stand. Uh, He is going to stand. He is going to use those legs. And then at the end of this first list in this verse, it says he entered the temple with them. Instead of being carried to the gate of the temple, he is allowed to enter the temple, perhaps for the first time in his life. Certainly the first time under his own power. The second list then says how he went in, he walked, he leaped, but then he also praised God. He enters the temple with the message of his deliverance, of his healing on his lips. Remember, this is a man that wasn't asking the right question, who was just seeking uh, today's necessities be met. And Peter and John introduce him to the power of the Holy Spirit to meet his real need, physically. But more than that, that there was a spiritual need that needed to be addressed, and this one was willing to understand that the meeting of this physical need would quickly turn him to to his spiritual need. And so he goes into the temple praising God. Everyone recognizes him. He didn't let them not recognize him. 
When a guy enters into a temple in that kind of condition, he's running around, he's using his legs for the first time, he is jumping up and down, um, he gets your attention. I was going to have one of you just start jumping up and down in here, but I'm afraid you might think we're going charismatic and get nervous. I don't think Scott would have done it anyway. It gets your attention when you're in the temple and all the activity there that is that is usually centered on the teaching and and the sacrifices and and here we have a person that's just jumping around and and excited and can't wait to tell you what's happened to him and praising God in a loud way and everyone recognizes him immediately because he's been there for years. And at the end of verse 10 we find that they were filled with wonder and amazement and they're they're just awed by this. You'd think they'd gotten used to this by now after all the work of Jesus Christ. But the temple is a very active place. And there are pilgrims that arrive who haven't been in Israel sometimes for decades themselves. There are others who have been irregular there and come and have heard the news or the gossip about this Jesus and about this way and about his disciples. We tend to think that everyone in the region was fully engaged in all that was going on. But the fact is, is that it was more likely that there were many, especially in the outlying areas of Israel, who simply heard of what was going on. And now, being in the temple area, they are again filled with wonder and amazement. Much like that group that was gathered by the event of the coming of the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 2, we have a group coming in, witnesses of the powerful working of God in other people's lives. First-hand witnesses. This guy was just sitting out there begging. Maybe some of these people gave him alms on their way in. And now here he is, jumping and shouting and praising God. Here he is, pointing again to the work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that this is the name that was used in his healing. And they were filled with wonder and amazement, similarly to what we saw in chapter 2. But the wonder and amazement was not sufficient. And Peter and John recognized this and so, while all these people running together, they were amazed. As they were bewildered, they were, they were awed by this. But they didn't understand what it all meant. And the man, of course, is going to not only, because he doesn't have a perfect knowledge of, of his understanding of his healing, he gives credit to James and John. Or, I'm sorry, Peter and John. Here's Peter and John. These are the men. And Peter and John... Right, realize that suddenly people are starting to look at them. They've gone to Solomon's porch. That's their typical day. They're going to go there and teach. They're going to go there and minister. And they've got this guy out there that's uh, just drawn in a crowd. And Peter starts off by saying, why do you look at us? Why are you looking at us as though we're special? Why are you coming to us and thinking that this is, that we are the next Messiah? We are not. There's only one Messiah. And again, the event of the healing was not sufficient to bring men to Christ. 
It was sufficient to get their attention. It was sufficient to amaze them. It was sufficient to get them to think on a different level, on a different scale than what is typical within the Temple Mount, even. But they went a wrong direction. They went in the direction of following a man instead of the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we still have those tendencies today, don't we? We still have that interest in following someone that we can see and touch and hear that's right there and we attribute to that person or their prayers or their touch or their voice um, uh, some powerful working in our lives. And Peter is saying, why are you looking at me? Why do you look so intently at us? That's his first words. He saw what was going on. He recognized that this was not the direction he needed to go. Uh, This is going to be mirrored again by Paul uh, and Barnabas later on among the Gentiles. But here is Peter's um, experience with this. Why do you marvel at this act? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power godliness we had made this man walk? Don't you come here looking for our approval. It is not we who can save you. It is not we who are going to bring you life. It is not we who can die for you. It is not we who can cover your sin. Um, We do this in the name of Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice that here, powerful working of the Holy Spirit through a man of God to miraculously heal an individual. The result in the individual was to praise God, to enter in the temple and to desire. And he's going to have some growing to do because he's going to encounter opposition and we will hopefully get to that this morning. But look at the people. The people are not responding the way they ought to. They're confronted with this powerful work of God in this man's life in their midst on this day and their response is misdirected. And so the first thing Peter has to do is to say, stop right where you're at. And much like in Acts chapter 2, um, guys, we're not drunk. <laughs> That's how it's going on here. I have to stop what you're thinking and redirect you to the truth using God's word. And so this is the pattern. This is what we do. The pattern that Peter's established, that Paul's established, that the early church establishes. That we direct people to God's word, whereby they can then rightly understand the activity of God in society. Whether that be a miraculous activity, or whether that be the activity of those that want to oppose us and oppress the truth. We come to all that we encounter of this world... And while the world is simply asking for alms, we want to give them something much more precious. But even once we give it to them, they may not necessarily grasp its import. We need to take them to God's word and train them. And this the church was engaged in. We saw that last week. And so Peter's going to take them 
and say, let's stop and redirect our attention to where it needs to be. We're not going to handle the last half of his sermon. I really just want to handle the first, and then we're going to jump into chapter 4 and see the response. Again, like his first sermon, his desires to point them to Jesus. And to demonstrate to them that they are responsible for his death. That they need to move from denying him to accepting him. That his death is on their shoulders. They asked for it. They asked for murder to be granted to you. They killed the prince of life. God raised him from the dead. There were plenty of witnesses to all of this. And so he again recounts the events of the last couple of months and then draws them to a decision. Verse 16, And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And my question to you is, when did the man have faith? We don't see him asking the right question. We don't see him obeying the first instruction. But as soon as Peter had begun to lift him up and he began sensing the work of God in his life, he leapt up. He finished the work, if you will. And he places faith in that name, Jesus, because that is how Peter described this, is in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Faith in that name is what healed him. The faith that comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. You've seen it. What is it? Is it something in us? We have this faith. It is about placing it in the right individual, Jesus Christ. And Peter calls his audience to place their faith in the name of Jesus, just as this individual has done. They denied him, they rejected him, they crucified him. But now you have an opportunity to change all of that. And that's what we're confronting people with in the world. We have an opportunity to radically transform lives. A transformation that most in the world can't really even lay a hold of. And some of that might be our fault, because we have not reflected that transformation to them sufficiently. They don't see it in us. They don't recognize that transformation because we don't live any differently. Do you see the difference that faith in God made, in the name of Jesus Christ made in this man's life? It's the difference that everybody was attracted to. He once was a lame beggar. Now he's a leaping praiser. What a contrast. It was the contrast that drew their interest. And having drawn their interest, now it needed to be rightly directed, not to the events of that day that happened at the gate, but rather by the events that made that possible. And that was the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross and then the resurrection. It is that that provides the power to transform lives. Peter goes on to say that you were kind of, you were ignorant of what you're doing really to some degree. 
But ignorance doesn't get you off the hook. Ignorance is no excuse. Isn't that a saying? Ignorance of the law is no excuse. If you break the law, you've broken it. Just because you didn't understand you'd broken it doesn't mean you didn't break it. You had murdered him. You thought you were doing a favor because religious leaders were your directors. But the fact is, you're guilty. And now it's time to address that through the name of Jesus Christ. That he can transform you as he transformed this man spiritually from death to life. And this is our message. And much like Peter's last sermon, we have him confronting them with their own sin. That that is the problem. Their choices to deny and to reject God. But now it is time for them to receive Christ as Savior and Lord. We're going to leave off his sermon right there for today and jump into the results. We've been talking about the results of moving people from asking the question, what does this all mean, to what should we do? In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now as they spoke to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, remember the Sadducees are the ones that don't believe in the resurrection at all. The Pharisees were the ones that did believe in the resurrection. So Saul would not have been among this number that came in. How many of the priests were Sadducees, were of that flavor, we're not really told, but apparently all these were. It says they were greatly disturbed about one thing. They taught the people and preached that in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They're okay with a mass of people. They're okay with a guy jumping around up and down and getting excited. They're okay with healing. That's okay. You can heal. We want the experience. You're okay. You can get us excited and thrilled and amazed. You can do all that. We're with you. There's a lot of that going around in society today. They want the experience of it all, but not the commitment. They're okay with all of that activity until we got to the teaching and preaching of Jesus Christ as resurrected. Now we got issues. Why? Why are there issues? Because... Once you acknowledge the resurrection, which the Sadducees didn't, didn't do. They didn't recognize the resurrection. They did not believe in it. And Christ took them to task several times over that. Once you recognize the resurrection, you recognize that you have to face God in judgment. That you stand not on the merit of your own life because your own life doesn't have that capacity, as we've been learning in Sunday school, to make you right with God. See, they were not just teaching that Jesus rose from the dead, but they're teaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That what happened to Jesus was available to all men, and that all would be, would be rise, raised, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting condemnation. 
And this, these individuals, religious leaders, priests, rejected, did not want to heed because to do so meant that they couldn't earn a righteous standing before God in a life to come. And again, we are confronted with many religions today who are systematically rejecting every aspect of the resurrection. It began by simply rejecting the the reality of hell. It then moved on to say that this is all there is. And when you die, you just cease to exist. And if this is the truth, then rightly does Paul say in Corinthians, we are a pitiable group. But if that's the lie, and the truth is there is a resurrection, then there is another group that is even more pitiable. Because they are lost in their sins. In this group, that did not want to hear about a resurrection, let alone one who was resurrected, or that resurrection was available and necessary for all men. We're going to quiet this one down. We're going to be looking at this in two weeks. We have a society today that doesn't want to hear this. Resurrection, you guys believe in fairy tales. You're not a thinking person if you believe that stuff. And I've confronted this extensively here in the last Oh, eight years or so. This whole philosophy that this is just fairy tales. And we're sure that if we give them ample evidence um, that would stand up in court, that we would change their minds. But the fact is that these men, these Sadducees, were witnesses of everything that everyone else was witnesses of. They were witnesses of Christ's death. They were there condemning him to death. Illegally in a night meeting, convening, and by the way, they didn't want to do it again here, so they didn't uh, deal with them because it was evening and it was against the law for them to hold court at night. So they're going to wait till morning. So they just put him in jail overnight. We'll deal with them in the morning. Something they didn't do with Christ. They did try him during the night against their own law. But they were there. They were well aware of his crucifixion. It was the event of the day in Jerusalem. And they were equally aware of his resurrection. In fact, they were the ones who had paid money to the guards to make up a story that it didn't really happen. You see, they were witnesses of the events. It wasn't a lack of information about what happened. There was an issue. The ignorance we're talking about, that Peter is talking about, is not an ignorance of the events of that day. Of the person of Jesus Christ and of his death, burial, and resurrection. It's not really proving those events that is at the crux of their unbelief. Their ignorance is one that is spiritual ignorance. That they refuse to desire to know that there is more than this life. 
Because as soon as there's more than this life, we recognize that there is no way to assure in my works of this flesh my future. We must acknowledge that. And so it's easier simply to relegate their instruction to fairy tales than to contemplate what if they're right. And of course this is a tool that we use against pretty much every faith. What if you're right? And so I go to the Jehovah's Witness who come to my door and I say, well, what if you're right? And I die. What happens to me? Well, you just cease to exist. I was like, okay. What happens if I don't believe, follow Jehovah's Witnesses? What happens to me when I die? You just cease to exist. It's more painful. So I have the same conclusion whether I'm a Jehovah's Witness or not. Correct. Now, what if I'm right? What if I'm right? You're going to spend eternity in a lake of fire. You'll be under judgment of God. What if the Sadducees were right? What if there was no resurrection? What have you lost? What have you gained? But what if Christ is right? Now the Sadducees have everything to lose. So Peter is recognizing immediately who he's dealing with, and I would contend that the arrival of these men into the temple with all the authority that they possessed did not alter his message whatsoever. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Men work was to crucify him. God's work was to raise him up. And he has done so to offer resurrection to all men. And this is what disturbs people, is to recognize that in this life you have a choice to make of whether you're going to be at the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne judgment. Because there is a resurrection. And this disturbs men. And rightly it should. But we dare not leave them in ignorance of this very fact. Of who Jesus is. Not only the the historical events, but who he is and what he has spiritually accomplished for all who would trust in him. And Peter is seeking to walk these people into, just as he reached down and grabbed that (laughs) paralyzed man and started to lift him up, he's reaching down and grabbing these Israelites, we're going to see it next week extensively, with their own prophets, he's going to reach down and grab them and say, don't you see that this is what they all talked about? If you need a little help, at least getting it started, here we go, I'll walk you through the steps. But we have to deal with this one thing first, And that is that there is a resurrection. We witnessed it. And because Christ is risen, we know that we will be risen.
Later on, chapter 4, again, this time in court, Peter is going to reiterate the same thing. You killed him. God raised him up. Um, It's going to be found in verse 10. The name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man stands here before you, whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the name. That with all the authority of Jesus Christ, who death itself and the most violent act of men could not stop his work. He, God raised him from the dead and now it is by his name and only by his name that salvation can be wrought in the lives of men that they can then participate in the, this first resurrection, resurrection to life. This is the message that Peter shares. This man who was asking the wrong questions looking the wrong direction and questioned his ability to obey was transformed by that name. The name of Jesus. And this similarly is our job. We have the privilege of going out in that name. And it is by that power that lives can be transformed. I know they're out there asking the wrong questions. It's nothing new. Peter had to deal with it. I know they're seeking the wrong things. They were back then too. But they do this largely out of ignorance. And so we carry with us the responsibility that Peter and John recognize that whether it's to the authorities that want to quiet us, or whether it's to the crowd that's just confused, or that one guy that just isn't asking the right questions and thinks he wants all these things in life, but when confronted with the fact that I have something much better for you, is ready to lay hold of it, we must share Christ in every setting. On a private level, in the public arena, and also among the authorities that would quiet us, the enemies of Christ. Because there is no other name. But this name, Jesus Christ, who saves. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for the opportunity to see Peter's faith in action, seeking to address the needs of men beyond their dreams, beyond their expectations. Lord, we thank you that that transforming power of your Spirit is still available to us today. Lord, our prayer is that we might take men who are asking for such little things that we really don't have the resources to give them anyway, 
that we might direct them to the great wondrous things that you have for them. In the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for that name that has not changed, nor has that power diminished these centuries later. And so we must conclude that it is we who fail to access by your Spirit that message, that name. And Lord, for this we ask your forgiveness, and we pray that you might find us to be faithfully in your service, communicating Christ, that we might turn worthless questions on their ear, that we might lead them to transforming questions. And then, Lord, that we might direct them to your Son, Jesus. Give us that wisdom in this week ahead. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.